Welcome to I Might Believe in Fairies. I am your host, Aaron Erber. This is a podcast about stories, myths, and the Catholic faith. Hey everybody, this is I Might Believe in Fairies, and um, today um, I have a very special guest, um, the very first ever uh, Catholic priest I've had on this show. Um, this is Father uh, Ronald Murphy, um, and he is uh, from the Society of, of Jesus. He's a Jesuit. And today we're going to be talking about um, his wonderful book, um, The Owl, the Raven, and the Dove, and the subtitle is The Religious Meaning of the Grimm's Magic Fairy Tales. So, um, Father Murphy, why don't you kind of introduce yourself, uh, your, give us your background, and um, how you got into studying uh, German literature and uh, the Grimm's uh, fairy tales in particular. Well, it's a long story, but <laughs> as you know, if you read about the Hessians, the, the brothers Grimm were from Hesse, and uh, the town they were born in of Hanau is right smack in the middle of it. And I actually managed to visit that in the course of writing the book. But anyway, I myself uh, was born in Trenton, New Jersey, which by a strange irony is the only American city that has ever been occupied by a Hessian army. (laughs) As you know from George Washington's exploits in crossing the Delaware River in December of 76, Anyway, the Hessian soldiers did not find it amusing that he was charging down on them, but this is way before I was born. And when I was in the Grimm's hometown of Steinau, uh, one of the local residents, he was a former mayor, asked me where I was from. And I said, believe it or not, I'm from the only American capital that was ever occupied by a German army. (laughs) He said, what? I said, yes. (laughs) The Hessians, Trenton, the capital of New Jersey. Oh, okay, he said. Which regiments? And I thought, boy, that tells you the difference between an American and a German. He wanted to know which regiments, and I (laughs) named only two because I couldn't remember all three. And he knew them and told me right away, oh, they're not from here. They're from seven miles away, that away. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Anyway, there was, there's a hidden connection there that I don't know the meaning of, despite writing about meaning, that uh, between myself and uh, the good old Hessians in Trenton. Anyway, uh, I studied German in high school, and I liked it very much. And uh, when I joined the Jesuits, at first I wanted to be an astronomer. I was very deeply interested in astronomy. And then gradually I got persuaded by my dislike of too much mathematics that I would probably be much better off in a subject that I really loved anyway, which was German literature and German language, and I was having a great time with that. And I guess a little bit of Puritanism was saying, well, you can't do that. You like it too much. (laughs) No, 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 no. You're allowed to do what you like. So anyway, a couple of the older priests told me, go ahead, for heaven's sakes, and do what you really like. That's what you should do. And uh, so I thought, well, you know, he's right about that. 
what I think I should do, that comes from me. But what I can do, that comes from God, whoever my creator was. And so I think I better do what I can do. And uh, so I ended up with German. And then in the Jesuits, uh, I was told, sure, go ahead. And But you got to get a higher degree in that if you want to teach college. So I said, all right. I ended up uh, going to Harvard. And that's where I picked up my interest in many, many German authors. But uh, German romanticism was kind of fascinating. And the Brothers Grimm uh, sort of were the embodiment of German romanticism. And I took a liking to them right away and to the fairy tales. And so I ended up, though, not writing my dissertation on them, but on a German author, Bertolt Brecht, who was very popular at the time and uh, was a Marxist fellow. And they, uh, even my director at Harvard said to me, why would you, a Catholic priest, want to do something on Bertolt Brecht? And I said, because he's a whole lot more than a Marxist. Hmm. And uh, he said, well, go to it. Let's see you make a case. And I did. And he liked it and I liked it. But I couldn't get the dissertation published. And the reason was a couple of very good presses told me they wanted to publish it, but members of their board objected because the man was a communist. Hmm. This is a, this is not nowadays. This is way back when. And uh, so I realized if you want to publish this, you better discover his Bible. You better prove he really was influenced by. Okay, so I did. I went over to Germany and. Thanks to help from a lovely woman in Berlin, I managed to get even photographs of Bert Brecht's uh, Bible. He was born in Augsburg, which is in the south of Germany, and his parents were Catholic and Lutheran. Hmm. So it was a sort of ecumenical house. And uh, But he went for Protestant scriptural catechetical instruction and got equivalently A pluses <laughs> because they told me, he could memorize whole hunks of the New Testament, especially letters of St. Paul, and then recite them by heart with no trouble whatsoever. So I, when I went to Berlin and asked about this, they were a little surprised and said, why do your American friends think this is strange? I said, I can't believe he would do this. And uh, Americans are kind of ideological. We, we think you got to be consistent with your ideology. <laughs> well, that's not very European. <laughs> and, right. <laughs> and, uh, the woman at the Brecht Museum said to me, why would they think that? Everybody in Germany took religious instruction in high school, Catholic, Protestant, whatever you want. Yeah. And I said, okay, we were never quite that open to things in my country. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that took care of him. But then when I was doing the Brothers Grimm, I became surprised that how much the Bible played a role in their works, too. And I should not have been surprised. I mean, it's part of the German literature tradition to deal with the scriptural tradition of Christianity. Mm -hmm. And that counts for Catholics and Protestants alike. It's not a sectarian item. Everybody, if you're a writer, you respect the writing background of your country. And sure enough, Luther's translation really is it of the 
old Bible in uh, German literature tradition. So anyway, uh, what I had done for Bert Brecht, I decided to do for the Brothers Grimm. And uh, I went over to Germany, and that's where I uh, not only ran into that wonderful mayor who had told me which asked me which regiments were fighting in Trenton, <laughs> but also <laughs> I managed to find two Bibles that the Brothers Grimm, of course, owned. One was Greek, of course. Mm. This is too much, but the New Testament. They were big scholars and teachers and. Really, they, uh, the two of them were perfectly at home with the New Testament, except they wouldn't dream of reading it, except in the original. So I found that, and uh, when I wanted to publish uh, the book, The Owl, the Raven, and the Dove, the one you created, there was no problem whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And the editor at Oxford just said, of course, of course, and, and had no difficulties with it Twitter. So I became very fascinated with how they handled the fairy tale material, for lack of a better word. Fairy tales are extremely old, and fairy tales go all the way back to Egypt, also mm. beyond Greece and Rome, all the way back to Egypt, and uh, a little slipper with Cinderella goes so far back that it really is based on events in 600 BC. So it's an old tradition to tell these uh, sort of, they're not spooky, but they all have a slightly transcendent element in them somewhere or mm -hmm. other. And uh, so I thought, this is really something I'm fascinated by now, too, so I'm going to look at them. The first thing that uh, struck me was Little Red Riding Hood, which is a tale that I uh, thought I knew, mm -hmm. and uh, but I didn't. <laughs> and so I grabbed the French version, which is uh, one that the Grimm's knew, talked about, criticized, and then changed into what they thought was the real origin of the fairy tale. And they didn't often think that they were adding things. Mm. They felt they were restoring things, something like a modern American might do with a 1930s Chevy or something. And it, he would say he's not redoing it, remake. He's not modernizing it. He's restoring it. Uh, for a spinning wheel. I saw a spinning wheel in somebody's room and it worked. And I said, did you find this in working order? No, no, I restored it. And I think that's the secret to the Brothers Grimm's tales. They believed they were restoring the tales to what they originally were and sort of transcendent religious tales, not just moral sort of Protestant, uh, as you would think from their background, you would think that it wouldn't be that. It, it isn't. It's it's more romantic, more Catholic, uh, in that the tales always contain some connection with the next world or with somebody in it, really. Right. Like a mother, above all. And uh, the connection is not broken by death. So anyway, that is a way, in a way, it's how I got started in the whole shebang. I 
I thought they were not appreciated really for what the Grimm's thought they were. And in a little essay that Wilhelm Grimm wrote on the subject called The Essence of the Fairy Tales, he said, I think that they are remnants of ancient religious myth and story uh, that has survived into our time by hiding on the edges of society, hmm. uh, hiding on the edges of literature even, but uh, not occupying the main light, and surviving in nursery rooms where the little kids are taken care of by these tales. Uh, so it survived where you don't expect great literature to survive. But yeah. that's what he thought our task is to uncover these little survivors from ancient days and to restore them like people do with the 1930s cars, restore them to what they uh, once were. And that's what they attempted to do. Uh, now, I did mention Red Riding Hood, so maybe I should start looking at that for you. And uh, I just happened to have, here's the ending of the French version. Now, it's, this is 100 years older uh, than the Grimm's version. So everybody says, aha, Perrault's version is the source of the Grimm's version. Mm -hmm. To which I say, yes and no. Because the Grimm's thought that the Perrault's had modernized it mm -hmm. in their own way. Because they're living in a time of the Enlightenment, rationalism, and they told these tales to a court audience, not to a peasant audience or to a middle-class audience. This was told for a court, and therefore it's got to be tongue-in-cheek, or the adults will poo-poo it. And that's, that's how they tell it. But the ending, the ending is a dead giveaway. First of all, uh, I won't go through the whole first part of the story, but she's carrying bread and butter. Now the Grimm's right away looked at that and said, that's a mistake. <laughs> just bread and butter I mean that's obviously modern and meaningless mm -hmm. so they change it to bread and wine which carries other connotations right. all and uh, so off she goes to grandma's house and she walks in and, and the wolf who is under the covers says uh, put the loaf and the pot of butter in the bread bin come over here and get in bed with me now that's for the court everybody in the court is sniggering and laughing of course right right <laughs> as they're supposed to and in a fairy tale you don't expect that and the bread and wine which have become bread and butter are gone mm -hmm. it just gets stuck in the bread bin what else would you do with the bread you know, right. if it was butter, and put the butter in the icebox or put their butter in the refrigerator right right <laughs> Uh, that's not what happened. The Grimm's say that that's a mistake. The religious underlying depth has been taken right out of it. We're going to restore it. And they did. The other thing, Little Red Riding Hood got undressed and climbed into bed. Well, Pooh, the, the Grimm's would not permit that. She can't get undressed. Right. And jump into bed with a wolf. But she does in the in Perrault's version. Well, it's a French version. It's the Enlightenment. Anyway, when she jumped in bed, 
she was most surprised to see what her grandmother was like with nothing on. Gosh. <laughs> it's hard to believe that these are fairy tales for little kids, but they are. Right. <laughs> she said, Grandmother, what big arms you have. And if you remember the Grimms, the Grimms don't mention the arms and legs. Mm, right. It's eyes, ears, nose, and throat, so to speak, to the Grimms. She was shocked to see what grandmother was like with nothing on. What big arms you have, the better to hug you with, my dear. Grandmother, what big legs you have, all the better to chase you with, my dear. Gosh. <laughs> grandmother, what big ears you have, now it gets normal. What big ears you have, all the better to hear you with, my dear. What great big eyes you have, all the better to see you with, my dear. Grandmother, what big teeth you have, all the better eat you with and with this is the last line and with these words that wicked wolf leapt upon little red riding hood and ate her end of the story <laughs> now I, I was told by, I had a French girl in class and she told me you know when you're a little girl and you hear this story told from Perot's version you cry mm-hmm because you identify with the little girl, and all of a sudden she's eaten. That's it. Right. And uh, to make sure you get the message, he <laughs> <laughs> attaches a moral to the story. And Of course. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> young girls, as we clearly see, pretty girls, especially innocent of all life's dangers, shouldn't stop and chat with strangers. And if this simple advice baits them, it's no surprise if a wolf eats them. <laughs> so it's, it's a little morality tale. It's right. a warning tale, you know, to tell little girls, be careful. He, he adds to the moral further on, not all wolves walk on four legs. Right. Walk on two. So <laughs> and now the Grimms felt, you know, they had created a nice, funny, clever story. But they certainly thought the ending was was a disappointment mm-hmm. from their point of view, and that the little hints that the story gave, like being finished off by the wolf and all that, indicated and pointed back backwards towards an origin in a much more religious tale that they wanted to restore, maybe resuscitate, bring the story back to life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So that it would tell us. And then you have in Little Red Riding Hood a completely, well, you read the wonderful account in Murphy's book. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't have to read that, but you know that it's just such a wonderful change that uh, Red Riding Hood not only manages to come out of the belly of the beast, but her grandmother as well. Right. So whatever hunter this is, this hunter has the amazing ability to not only open the belly of the beast, but he also has the ability to bring out the current generation and the two generations ago, the grandmother. So whatever hunter this is, he has abilities to save the go over the course of time. Mm-hmm. And that's pure romanticism of the best type. And uh, the Grimm's really must have liked that when both of them popped out. And then 
comes the real role of the bread and the wine. Because unlike being put in the bread box and get in bed with me, uh, grandmother now, having been revived, eats the bread, drinks the wine, and feels completely revived. And little Red Riding Hood knows, hey, don't go wandering around in the woods like that. Uh, succumbing to the temptation to look at everything beautiful in the world when your mother told you stay on the path. Stay on the path. And so it's a morality tale in its own way about mm-hmm. staying on the path. But it can say it, it's got a certain, not only a savior figure with the hunter, but also it brings communion so that the hunter and grandmother are together through the bread and the wine. And he's the victor. The Eastern Church would like that. And therefore he walks off with the pelt off. And the others have the bread and the wine. Uh, so now that that's sort of typical of what the Greers thought they were doing, uh, restoring these uh, tales to transcendent heaven, life after death sort of meanings, rather than just keeping the on the uh, stay on the path moral type things that that uh, well say the 18th century preferred, but the 19th century didn't mm-hmm. and was getting back to true romanticism was getting back to medieval values and much older than medieval values right well with um with the wolf um you wrote in here that they so uh the grims will take elements of um norse mythology um, yes. as well as classical mythology and and kind of combine it with um uh, biblical stories and images from from scripture. With and the scriptural um, layer was always the dominant layer. Um, yes. Whereas they'll they'll take little little images that they think should be in the text, and they'll put them in there. They'll they'll restore them. Um, and one of those images was the wolf as a Fenrir. Uh, and in here you wrote and um, regarding the him Fenrir devouring little Red and grandmother, and like Fenrir of old, he is not just plotting how to eat you, so to speak, but your roots and origins as well, your grandmother. Um, so he Fenrir, you know, is the world devouring wolf that That's right. kills Odin, right? That that Odin is defeated by, or Wo- Woden is defeated by Fenrir at the end of time. Um, and the hunter as Christ is better than Odin, right? Is like Odin is a lesser than Christ. So Christ as the hunter can defeat and restore um, uh, both Red, Little Red, and her grandmother. And so her the, grandmother. Yeah, yeah. The, the present and the past. Um, and then, yeah, he takes the pelt and, and, walk, and walks, off, walks off with it. Um, so that's, so can you speak to that? Like how, how they take these different, what they were doing with these different like classical and Norse and biblical stories and kind of combining them in very interesting and beautiful ways in here. It's, it's a lot like what Tolkien did in Lord of the Rings. Like he, you, know, you have Gandalf who wanders around looking like Odin. Like he, he's it's like right. an Odin figure, you know, he's handing out quests and weapons and he's got the gray cloak and hat. Uh, but then uh, Gandalf has this transfiguration moment when he comes back from the dead. Right. And he's, he's uh, Gandalf the white. So it's kind of that transition from like 
the pagan imagery to the to the Christian imagery. Um, and right. that's very similar to what the, the Grimm brothers were doing, too. Could you speak yes, to that a little right. bit? Yes, that's very, very, very good, because the Grimm's did feel they were restoring. And, uh, you know, of course, most modern critics say, no, they're not, by just creating out of whole cloth. I don't think they felt that way at all. And you're right, Fenrir is really uh, almost a figure that represents annihilation because yeah. he swallows the sun and uh, the lights disappear from the heavens and Fenrir is a, fig is a figure of real darkness and a really good figure for death. Not, But not biblical, but what, why does it have to be biblical? Mm -hmm. so, Use Norse mythology to get a figure for death. Uh, and that's a pretty horrifying figure. There's another horror that he uh, does not use much, and that is in Norse mythology, you have the Nidhogg, right. which is that horrible serpent that devours corpses. And that really makes sure that you become nothing. Right. Uh, you already died, but that's not enough. The Nidhogg wants to annihilate your corpse. <laughs> right. Uh, it's really a bleak and very absolute figure for death. And uh, But anyway, the wolf will do just well. <laughs> there are also witches, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> if necessary. But the in a way, the witch figure is just like that. It's also a figure that represents death or annihilation, um, something that the Old Testament even shies away from representing. Mm -hmm. uh, the Old Testament will say the angel of death. The angel of death will pass over the people of Israel and just strike down this first son of the Egyptians. Well, uh, no flying dragon? No, no, no. The angel of death. Okay. In a way, that means then that God sends it. Yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. So uh, there's no reason why they should not blend in order to, I guess you could say, arrive at antiquity, get this fairy tale back to its origins, which, you know, you can push them back as far as... 300, 600 BC, if you push them back, that's pre Christian. But you still can. And you can certainly use Fenrir whenever you really want an awful death figure. And since everybody has to face death, regardless of religion, no problem with using Fenrir. He's available, he's <laughs> not doing anything at the moment. But they, uh, they always do Christianize them. And, and mm -hmm. in this sense, they are not typically reformed. This is more of a Catholicizing, and that's typical of German Romanticism. Even the most Lutheran or most reformed uh, enjoyed Catholicism's pushing back into the roots and roots and roots of things and uh, being at home with ancient culture, especially classic. Uh, and not fearing it as being, oh, no, it's pagan. Uh, and pagan is also, you know, good. Uh, we have many elements of so-called pagan religion that we don't hesitate to use 
incense being one, candles being another. We don't hesitate to use those things. Mm-hmm. And, and my favorite is at Christmas time, we bring the tree right in the right. house. And uh, I always ask my students that what, if I can decide how to do it, I always tell them now at Christmas time, that's the most religious feast in the winter. You certainly would bring in nothing pagan in your house for Christmas, would you? They also, oh, we never do that. Then I just say, you wouldn't bring an evergreen tree into your house. Yggdrasil. <laughs> and decorate it and glorify it. No, 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 no. We would never have, ah, you certainly would, and you do it. And if you don't do it, you don't feel it's Christmas. Right. So the blend is already there. And the Grimm saw it, and we have some pictures and drawings of them uh, with a Christmas tree in their house. So they they loved these old customs. That's another thing about the Grimm's that isn't always written about. They loved finding how the past had survived into the present. So when you pick up a, a piece of stone off the sidewalk, uh, the Grimm's would go, <clears throat> Pleistocene, <laughs> early Eocene. No, maybe even earlier. And look, it's still here. We're still walking on it. Uh, that always amazed them, and I like that very, very much. They, we'd see old customs. and When you go into a church and you see two candles burning on the altar, why not replace them with electric lights? And say, well, no, please don't be foolish. Go into a restaurant. Do you want electric lights on the table? <laughs> Why? And what does the candle do? It brings back old times, yeah. very old times. And uh, you figure, if you're going to be pious, well, probably Jesus had candles on the table. Or maybe Passover. At Passover, you always have two candles, and the mother comes in and says the blessing for light over the candles. Don't tell me you Catholics still have the candles on the table after 2,000 years. Yes, we do. <laughs> Interesting yeah. that the Grimm's would love things like that, and they did, and really appreciated it. When the priest says Mass, he wouldn't still be wearing 2,000-year-old clothes, would he? Yes. How would he do that? Protestant ministers generally wear shirt and tie with a nice <laughs> suit. Couldn't Catholic priests do that? Yes, they could. But they don't. They put on a, an alb that makes them look like contemporary Arabs. And <laughs> then they put a prayer shawl simplified around their shoulders and they've got a stole. Why are they doing this? Because we did it. That's the reason. Oh, yes, it is a reason. You know, for us crazies, there is a reason. We want to think that the past never slips away entirely. It right. remains with us in the present, and it does not go away. So we bring the bread and wine forward. You know, well, we we don't really drink wine anymore. Could we use whiskey? Probably you could, but we wouldn't. Why not? Because we didn't. We right. didn't <laughs> Right. And it's not a reason reason. Uh, same reason that uh, you use the same decorations on your Christmas tree that your grandmother did. Mm-hmm. Why? Because she did. 
right? It's been handed down to us. You know, it's, 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 Communion. It's, it's communion. communion. Yeah, it's it's this communion of the saints. Yeah, um, remaining communion and anyway. Yeah. So that's uh, that's the where the three tales can be pulled together. You can see the wolf instead of a biblical uh, devil figure, which would have to be like a black angel or something yeah. like that. But why not just use the one from Old Norse and uh, and then the Grimms could claim all the more. This tale comes from ancient Norse sources. Then Perot got a hold of it, and the French messed it up. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, you, you read those. You, you, court of using satire. I know you read those French stories, and they're so they're irritating because they they are so tongue in cheek. They're so ironic. They're so right. and they they come with these really ham fisted morals that are that just made they just. They're not good stories. You know, they, you don't like them as stories. They might be funny. You know, you might get a, a chuckle out of them, but right. they're not, they're just not deep. You know, everything's like the bread and butter is, it's arbitrary. You know, who cares? It could have been anything. It could have been salami and cheese. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't yeah, matter. Right. Um, it could have been salami and cheese. <laughs> it's absolutely right. Yeah. But the Grimm's, they've restored these stories. And that was a criticism they got, like you pointed out in your book, that they're, making it up, right? That they're just making these, they're, they, they take these little fragments of stories and then they just kind of add on whatever they think um, they want to add. But your argument in the book and um, what I agree with is that they're trying to restore these stories yes. to what, um, to something like they would have been like uh, in the past, in the ancient past. Because these stories are old, like you said. They go back to Egypt, um, possibly even... You know, they have ba a basis in, in scripture, too. Like they come from, like, the Old Testament, maybe. You know, like, there, there's definite, that's a definite possibility. Um, at the very least, they come from something as ancient as Egypt, uh, especially Cinderella. With I think the, the Egyptian story, it's a sandal <laughs> instead of a slipper. <laughs> so it's... Well, that's old. <laughs> yeah, like that's, that's pretty old. Um, so one of the stories, like, the Little Red Riding Hood, when I read that, your, your section in there, that was very surprising. Um, and it was so rich, uh, that just the, the layers of symbolism in there. Um, another one that you wanted to talk about too, was ha uh, Hansel and Gretel, yes. um, and how they, the, it's Wilhelm primarily wrote these, right? It's, it was real, Wilhelm right. who, yeah. That's right. Um, well, in the beginning they both did. Okay. Okay. In the beginning they both did because they both had that thing about, uh, the wonders of finding something ancient in contemporary yeah. modern life. And they both loved that, and they found the stories to be that, mm -hmm. and other things too. But uh, yes, uh, they both thought that that was the greatest thing. But then later on in life, uh, Jacob went off more into the law mm -hmm. for a long time, and Wilhelm stuck with the uh, stories, and he had other things too, superstitions. Mm. He thought that they probably had an ancient origin, too, but they weren't sure what they were. Uh, I'm thinking as a kid, we used to say not to step on a crack in the sidewalk. Right. Step on a crack, break your mother's back. Yep. <laughs> I don't know where we got that from. Yeah, I have it's no weird. No idea. And it wasn't taught to me by my parents. All kids knew that, and we all said it. Yep. And no, same. It, that doesn't go away, either. <laughs> That's what I, I when know, I was a kid too. Said that stuff. Yeah, making the sign of the cross by holding your fingers like this and saying "good luck." Oh, weird! 
Yeah, so that we the fingers that. crossed is, is the same. It is. It's the sign of the cross. Never and, knew that. And, and then you say something pagan. Good luck. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's because that's what our culture is. It, you know, we are Christians who are Greco-Romans who are German-speaking, etc. Yeah. That's, this is our whole inheritance, practically, and... Uh, the Grimms were very, very aware of that. They didn't just start last week. Right. And and though Jacob, religiously speaking, Jacob was very, very pro-reform. Mm-hmm. And he loved reformed churches, and he described how totally plain they were. But your imagination helps out. I think Wilhelm was the other way. He enjoyed the decoration in sight of ancient paintings and things like that. And they both were deeply moved. And they, they wrote about this, watching their mother go down the aisle up to the altar to receive communion in the Reformed Church uh, in their hometown of Steinau. I was very moved by that same thing when I walked into it. it it's really a Gothic church from the 1200s. Mm. It's way pre-Reformation. And uh, when I was there, they had recently uncovered in the basement a reproduction, a small statue of Christ lying in the tomb. I don't know if that was out when the Brothers Grimm came by. And there were little holes in it to poke candles in so you could see it. Anyway, there were many, many things that said there's there's more than one way to be Christian and religious, even though their family was very, very much faithful to the Reformed Church, uh, which hardly now exists in Germany. I, I, I asked for it, the Deutsche Reformierte Kirche, and they told me it really doesn't exist anymore. They have all become Lutheran. Mm, okay. Or Catholic. Right. The Reformed Church sort of now is restricted back up to Switzerland where it began, and uh, with Calvin and Zwingli, but you don't, you don't hear too much of, of it at all. But in the Grimm's day, there was still strong Huguenot influence from France who had come and hidden in Germany to get away from the Catholics and persecuting them in France. So they were an influence, a strong influence on the Brothers Grimm because yeah. they knew the parole version. They, they didn't know what the Grimms were going to produce out of that, but they knew the parole version. Now I forgot where we are. <laughs> oh, um, well, that, it's a good insight into um, Wilhelm's spirituality. And you actually, um, we, were talk, we were going to talk about Hansel and Gretel. Um, oh, okay. But yeah. your, um, the discussion of Wilhelm's spirituality is, is a big section of the book. Um, yes. Because you went to Germany and you actually got, you mentioned this before, you got a couple of their Bibles and you were able to go through one of them. It had uh, Wilhelm's um, notes and he underlined passages and you, you list them all off in here. Um, and it, yes. for someone who was Reformed, you made note in there that you know, there really wasn't much focus on predestination or, or any. Yes, yeah, that's right. It was more about um, love, like God's love and fidelity um, and Oddly enough, like the um, not necessarily in scripture, but um, in his stories, there's a strong emphasis on the communion of saints 
in oh, there. Oh, very strong. Yeah. Yes. Um, and and the and the resurrection is a big focus of his spirituality is the resurrection. Um, there are other things too. Humility. Uh, characters who display humility um, tend to do very well in his stories. <laughs> uh, they're they're, they're typically the hero. Um, it's not the strong and mighty, but it's the it's the the humble. Um, and that's very scriptural as well. So yeah, it's very um, very. It's very good insights into Wilhelm's spirituality, which does tend to be more ecumenical, like you point out. Um, it and it tends to lend itself more to kind of a, a maybe a small C sort of Catholic um, yeah. kind of universal Both, approach. He, uh, he, one of the things that I don't think I particularly wrote about there is, but he is constantly a fan, if I may say that, of the Trinity concept of God. Yeah. Because it's got communion in it mm -hmm. between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit being the heart and soul of, of the communion between the Father and the Son. He loves that. And the guy who did the German translation uh, that they owned, the German Bible, he wrote in his introduction that God is worshipped everywhere on earth where the Father is praised through the Son within the Holy Spirit. And Grimm underlined that, wow. put lines next to it. And, if he had been modern, there would have been stars and exclamation points and everything. He really thought that that was the best way to say it. So he he believed in communion at the highest possible level. Yeah. And and then he believed in it in the down to earth level. And that's the Hansel and Gretel part that's uh, very very interesting because uh, the father should represent. God the Father, but does not, mm -hmm. and is very weak and gives in to his wife all the time. Now, the reason uh, why he gives in to her is because she's a master of logic. Right. Now you can see the romanticism coming out, opposed to the enlightenment and the use of logic and arithmetical reasoning, especially when you use it against people you know and we don't need this kid therefore let's get rid of him we can't feed him can't feed ourselves we gotta ditch him you know we gotta get rid of these yeah. kids that's why i was thinking of this you know there's <laughs> there's four of us here mommy daddy daughter son and we can get rid of those too we'll have enough food because four minus two equals two right yeah she's very logical it's very very logical yeah outrageous right and then so you think well now angela and gretel they are going to say no to the use of reason oh no the opposite they love reason too mm -hmm. but it's got to be under the control of love mm. family love especially Family love has to use reason to accomplish good things for people, but it may not use it to get rid of people. <laughs> <laughs> right. So when uh, in the use of reason in Hansel and Gretel is very clever. In the beginning, uh, he doesn't. He, the father, does not want to get rid of the kids, and he even says we should share the last crumbs of bread with our kids before we drop dead and she says no good because if you get rid of the kids we will have enough food and then she looks at him and says otherwise dear carpenter he's a 
in German, he's a Holzhacker. He's a guy, a lumberjack. Mm, yep. And she just says, you may as well start planing the boards for our caskets. <laughs> oh, boy. But it's clever. It's an attack on him based on what he does. Very clever and nasty. Better than even the French nastiness in their versions. <laughs> and then she says to him, well, you get to hear in most logic classes, he who says A, it's got to say B. You say you want to live, then you're saying you don't want the kids around. Right. It sounds awful in German. If you say A, you got to say B. And then you got to say C, and you got to say D. Uh, you have to keep going logically. And logic rules the show. And, well, he gives in. And the kids over here, and she cries, and he says, that's all right, don't worry. And then uh, when they go into the forest, and that's another symbolic thing in the Grimm's fairy tales. The forest is the place uh, where a certain religious consciousness can happen to you. Uh, so it's it's as though you say, I walked into church and the forest overpowered me. Uh, it's, it's a place where there are different rules than the A minus B plus C equals D world exists. And uh, so they, <coughs> excuse me, they get taken into the woods, but they try to use some logic to avoid consequences like dropping stones behind them so they can find their way back to the house. And the Gretel try, which is illogical, they try using breadcrumbs, uh, but the birds say no. They eat all the crumbs. So they're, they're caught in the woods. Now, you would think the father would have trouble in the woods. He's brought them all the way in. His wife has said, give them a last hunk of bread and run. Uh, this is totally unnecessary, but it just shows you how ambivalent he is. He takes a dead branch and ties it to the tree, a dead tree, so that it will go bang, bang, bang when the wind blows. And the kids will think and have the false comfort, Daddy is nearby. Yeah. I can hear the sound of his axe against the tree. Oh, it's devastating. It's an awful disappointment. <laughs> you were yeah. thinking, and I, I was thinking, he's going to be the semi-hero. No. But he's not really. Yeah, yeah, that's a little. He's cooperating now way above and beyond. Anyway, he does it. But at least he feels bad as he does the bad stuff. He <laughs> right. feels bad about it. He has a, he has a conscience still, and that that it's what ultimately I think saves him in the end he um, because he does feel bad. He doesn't want to do it, but he's weak willed, and he listens to his his horrible wife. <laughs> yes, he does. I know it's awful, but he does do it. But it makes everybody be able to listen because you say, "Well, human weakness. There it is. Look at it. It's got a conscience, but wants to do what she wants." So he, uh, well, that's him, you think. Then the kids scoot uh, off and go deeper and deeper. And they're lost mm -hmm. into the forest when they find they're all alone and come to the house. And then the hidden motif in the story, hunger, eating, come out. And they see this little gingerbread house. 
It is a very common sight in Germany at Christmas time again. And they start eating it. And you say, it's not yours. What are you doing eating that house? Well, because we're hungry, so we're eating it. They're doing what their parents did. They're, they should not know I'm hungry, so I'm going to take it. I'm hungry. That's A. There's food right there. B, so I'm going to eat it. Uh, it's as though you would say it looks like original sin. It's been passed on already, mm-hmm. even in their troubles. They're doing what their parents did in a way. But they at least do it together. And then, poor kids. (laughs) Well, anyway, how do they get to that little house? I don't know if you remember this, but there is an evergreen tree. Mm. And of course, there's a white bird. Oh, boy, here comes (laughs) Christianity. There is a white bird in the tree, and it flies on ahead of them and leads them to the house where they're supposed to go and they're supposed to go there for temptation. Well, they go. Then, as you know, the temptation is, is, is done in food term. Angela is given the best of food because she wants to fatten him up to eat him. And then the witch gives the girl nothing but crab shells. Right. right. She's not interested in her. Hoping, I suppose, they'll turn on each other. You get all the good food. I don't get anything. Yeah, but you get to walk around outside the cage. I don't. Doesn't happen. Does not happen. Why not? There's there's the communion between them. They're brother and sister. There's a relationship there between them. And uh, it's not broken by the witch. Not Even though her effort is very effective. It's based on food again. But it, it doesn't work. And then... Uh, you know, the ending is also based on food. She actually decides she'd like to eat the girl, too, and tells her to climb into the oven. This is one of those big outside ovens. They have right. them still right. there. And it's a bread oven. So there's a wooden peel, I think they call it. And she tells the witch, I don't know how to do it. Will you show me? And you know that the witch then goes in. And horror of horrors. The witch gets baked alive, like the very bread and food that she keeps demanding. She's devouring other people, and she becomes a devourable hunk of food herself, cooked in her own oven. Uh, and nobody eats her, and I'm interested in that. And then the kids <laughs> become totally rich, go into her house, take all her jewels and everything, and prepare to run home to daddy. And then comes something I'm sure is from the Grimm's entirely there is a river there was absolutely no mention of a river on the way into the forest now all of a sudden they can't get out to get back on the same route because they want to go home to their father's house except unless they cross a river they have to cross a river now where did that come from the grams put it in and let you know it's not a river river by telling you there's no bridge, there aren't even stepping stones so that you could get across it. There's no way to get across it. It's not that kind of river. Well, then how do you? Along comes a duck. Another bird. And the duck says, I'll take you across. And Gretel says a magic spell. And then they go across one by one. 
very Catholic. You're not, you can't be baptized by twos and by threes. Oh, yeah. One. And the duck takes each one across, and then, you know, within seconds, they're at their father's house. And he was feeling bad. And every, it's really beautiful because they're reunited. Uh, in the German version, they take out the jewels and throw them. They go all over the floor, bouncing and jumping as if they were happy to be back, too. And the story ends for, with a sort of an allusion to baptism. Uh, because it's it's water that's not crossable by wading through it. There's no rowboat to take you across. Only by magic means. What kind of magic? Bird magic. <laughs> right. It's a white duck, too, that. I think. That's so, we just had Pentecost. We know all about that. Right. <laughs> so, you know, that story, too, insists on a sort of transcendental union. And after going through the water... They come back and they arrive at their father's house. That's a strangely biblical term, too. Mm -hmm. At their father's house, where they are extremely rich, well endowed, and they enrich him. Uh, and they both share their love for each other. So it's a very, very beautiful tale. But there's one of the places where the critics would say, well, the Grimms were adding things. Yes, they were. And one of the main things that they added is right there, the uh, the river not crossable by boat or by stepping stones. Well, then the oh, mother, Lord. the mother is gone um, at that point. Yes, like she she right. died. And um, there's, died. A, there's a connection between the mother and the witch, right? They're, Very they're, good. You yeah. read the book well. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the witch died. Oh, and conveniently, the mother died, too. Like, oh, whoa, there's a connection there, you know. That's right. <laughs> That's, you know, usually people do not catch the connection between the mother and the witch mm -hmm. and the dying. The mother wanted to get rid of the kids. The witch wants to get rid of the kids. They right. have a lot in common. That really makes the mother not a mother, but a witch. Yep. She wants to devour her own children. That is a witch. And uh, actually, the Brothers Grimm in many of these tales did not have stepmothers. Yeah, you mentioned that in the book, yeah. Yeah, that were mothers. And then that was one of the very few cases I know of where the Grimms gave in to the parents uh, in the readership of the tales who said, please don't make us look so bad with our children. So, <laughs> as you can understand. <laughs> well, that that's so um, in Snow White. Um, the original, the, their their first manuscript uh, version of Snow White, he had the mother be the evil queen, uh, but yes. like you said, there was push, there was some pushback, and they cha he changed it to the stepmother, and I think that works better for the story. I think I think it works better in that case because just like in Cinderella, you have this kind of communion between the good mother and the good daughter. Um, yes, uh, both mothers died, uh, right. but they have this sort of uh, communion between the two of them, and especially in Cinderella, where the mother tells Cinderella, uh, be good and pious, and I'll always That's be there right. for you, right? Um, That's right. And in, in Snow White, I think that would have been, the story would have suffered, I think, if he had maintained that the mother was evil. After asking for a daughter, um, right. you know, that was the black of hair, or, you know, as black as ebony, as white as snow, and as red as blood, um, I think it would have it would have hurt the story, I think, if he 
kept the mother as the evil right. person. Um, I think it has to be the mother. And especially because she stabs her finger. Yeah. When she's uh, sewing at the window. Uh, yep, it has to be. And the red, white, and black fits so well with the mother's sewing and with mm -hmm. her wishes for her child. That would not be a stepmother wishing things like that. Right. Or a kid that's not her own. Right. Uh, no, but that has to be a mother, I think. Yes. And, and then she dies. Right, yeah. That's the other thing the Grimm's have been prayed, praised for is that they're very realistic about death. And this is the beginning of the, or in the middle even, of the 19th century when when women died often in childbirth. Yeah. Even. So this is not uh, a fantasy, whereas there's no such thing with Perot. Ah, right. Uh, you know, there's, there's no facing up to the realities of life, not, not the really bitter ones. Uh, there's no facing up to the realities of life as as much as there is in the fairy tale, and that, and that in a way cuts into people's criticism of fairy tales as just being a synonym for pie in the sky. Mm. Not, not really. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> the opposite. They're very the realistic opposite. and very dark. Um, yep, really, and especially the Brothers Grimm's versions of them, where there's no satire, laughter, satirical stuff. Uh, some of some of them, yes, but not these magical ones. And they themselves knew that these fairy tales were really special, yeah. uh, and published them even as special than uh, in the earlier versions. They have others that are sort of like are good for a laugh and things like that. Right, not, right. Not these. These are, are pretty serious and and take life and death very serious. Bettelheim appraises them for that too. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. of yeah, no, that's and that's the, and the union, the bond between parent and child, is assumed to be absolutely strong, and so if it's ever violated, it's extremely strong. Yeah, but and they consider uh, see that sort of relationship to be, I don't know, an archetype for the relationship to God and. Why not? That's Christianity. And, and uh, you're going to call God our father, then you're using family language right away. Uh, so, yeah, that's very important that she be a mother sometimes and a stepmother. Really, you're right about that one. That one really does have to be a stepmother. Yeah. And in Disney's version, the movie absolutely has to be a stepmother. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, Disney um, pulls a lot from the Charles Perrault, uh yes. French versions, which I I don't like as much. Um, so I've I've been kind of critical of Disney. Now the movies are like as works of art. They're especially the older ones are very they're magnificent works of art. But they are um, I think they lose a lot. And I know Tol Tolkien and C.S. Lewis they went to go see Snow White when it came out in the theaters. They went together. Um, oh. And. Uh, did they? Yeah, they did. They actually they saw it in theaters, and um, they both were very critical of it um, because Tolkien did not like how they handled the dwarves, how Disney handled the dwarves, making them goofy and kind of silly. Where um, he liked yes. the original Grimm story of like they're very serious, solemn creatures who uh, have, have a lot of dignity to them. Um, yes. Yeah, and, and work in the mines. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, so, so it's, it's right interesting. away they've got to be Norse if they worked in the mines. And mm. that's, yeah. That's got to be, uh, they're definitely North Germanic when you hear that. Right. But I saw it too when it first came out. Not really first because I was just being born, I think, when <laughs> it first came out. But uh, I was really positively impressed by it. But I was just a little kid. And the mirror on the wall scared me. Mm, yeah. And uh, in a way, I never saw the the glass imagery in the story because I was so terrified of that talking mirror. Mm -hmm. So I saw it again <laughs> when I was much older. I still like it. But they're right about their criticism of the dwarves. The dwarves should be left without funny names. Right, right. And I, I agree with that. And because in a way, I think, here's my reading, the dwarves need to stand for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, mm. Friday, the work-a-day, maybe not in the mines, but the work-a-day world of life. Uh-oh, I see a kid. Yep, they just got back from the, the chiropractor. Go back downstairs, sweetie. No! Yeah, go on. Mommy's not there. Go, well, that's okay. Just hang, just, you can be quiet while Mama comes back. <laughs> Don't oh. tell him to get lost in the woods. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, the dwarf, when you say the, the days of the week, when Snow White comes to their house after being uh, lost in the woods, almost killed by the, the, um, the hunter, or the the huntsman, um, and she sleeps in the seventh bed, and so the, yeah. the the dwarf who you would normally sleep there has to sleep in the sixth bed, right? right. So there's this room, then there's this room for Sunday, the Sabbath, um, that's right. that they didn't have before necessarily. Um, that's right. I just and I just made that connection now. Sleepy and dopey and uh, <laughs> sneezy and all the rest. Then it then it becomes a movie for children even more. Right. And maybe, I mean, that, that has good points too, but not as much as tale for adults as if you leave them nameless and just let them be dwarfs. Right. But where Disney really got it right was the way he did the ending. Mm, yeah. I can still remember the candles that were burning by her casket and the wax is coming down and the animals in the world are crying mm -hmm. and big blobs of wax like tears are coming down the candlesticks unbelievable the, the connections that uh, disney's people put in very beautiful and the music the music in the house in the woods had been all german folk music mm. And the clock on the walls, a cuckoo clock from the Black Forest somewhere, I guess. But that's really a folk German place. And yeah. where the little house in the forest is. Until the funeral. The switch is complete. There's no more folk music. Instead, you hear the chords of an organ. Because it's a funeral. Mm -hmm. And because the death of a good person is a church event, mm. it's a religious event. And so, uh, it's, <laughs> I think it's really nice what he did at the end. Uh, because 
the dwarfs, who are, as you know, as well as I do, Germanic mm-hmm. figures, start kneeling like Catholics. Yeah. yeah. All around the casket. They start kneeling until the prince comes. And when the prince comes, they get up and back off and kneel to him, mm. bowing their heads even. You know, they look up as if to say, who is this? And then down. So I figure, Disney figured it out. Yeah. He yeah. knew that this may look all Germanic, but it's Christian. And so he, he made the ending work that way. I mean, I don't know if you want to talk about Disney, but I, the ending is really impressive because after he bends over, kisses her, and she wakes up, believe it or not, I once gave a talk about this to a bunch of Anglican priests, <laughs> and they said to me, hey, he's bending over her the way we kissed the altar. Ah. And I said, very good. But I didn't say anything. I just said, very nice. Good way to see it. Excellent way to see it. Then she wakes up. She's restored. And it's just like what the Grimms are doing with the tails. Mm -hmm. Restoring them. She's restored to life. Regular life. Now that remains to be seen. Is it going to be regular life back into the little German house where you have to do the dishes? No. The prince just happens to have his horse there, puts her on the horse, and then she says, when she wakes up right away, she says in German, Wo bin ich? Where am I? And he answers her, Du bist bei mir. Which is very hard to translate into English except by saying the same thing like, You're at my place. Hmm. Yeah. Du bist bei mir. You're at my place. And then the two of them ride off. Now, normally in a picture like this, you would expect. They ride off to the horizon where where on a distant horizon on top of the hills, a beautiful shining Walt Disney style castle. That's not what he does. Disney instead has them ride off while up way up in the sky, the sun brilliantly shining. The camera turns onto the sun and all you can see in the middle of it is a castle. Mm-hmm. That's where they're going. Yeah, uh, I say Disney understood. Yeah, that when you you had that uh, description in your book, I yeah, yeah, I was like, yes, that Disney got that part right for sure. Because I think you you said you were watching it with your mother, I think too, and your mother turns <laughs> to you. But I, I yeah. finished the book. Right, I she turns to you and she says, nuts. "Are they dead? Did they die? Is she dead? Yes. You know?" And it's like, well, yes that. and no. You know, it's it's eternal life. Um, Yep. Riding up, you know, going to going to heaven with the king's son, which is Christ. It's yes, yeah, sir. very beautiful. Like that, yeah. The, he did the ending is very very good um, uh, to that movie. It's it's a like I said, it artistically, it's a it's a very well done movie. They just get. Uh, I don't think Snow White isn't uh, from Perot, right? It's not. There's no Perot version of Snow no, White. No, there's no Perot version. Right. No, that's he got that in Germany. 
from a, a woman in a poorhouse hmm. in Hesha. And I imagine, you know, usually the, the Grimms took notes. We have them, some of them, uh, and they're sketchy. Mm. And that could be because the person told the story in a sketchy way, or it could be because they were just taking notes in a kind of shorthand. Mm. But uh, they filled that one out. Mm. And then Disney, Disney then took the spirit of it and tried to Americanize it a little bit. And that's why the dwarfs get named. And and, uh, and I can see why our British friends did not care, care for that. <laughs> right. <laughs> But that's very American to do something like that. And it's also American to see that evil gets punished. Mm -hmm. Because that's our Protestant heritage, too. It's not just Catholic. That's uh, so that you remember the, the, the in the movie, the dwarves start chasing the Wicked Witch up mm -hmm. a mountain and the rain is pouring down and the vultures are circling. Right which is an American symbol of death being down below there on the ground. Yeah. And so he, he introduces the vultures, and that's not in anything German. And uh, and then she screams and falls to her death, and the vultures smile and start descending. Right. right. Now it fits in, though, because the Grimms would say, ah, they're descending to eat yeah yep we're back to the usual themes but uh that's a complete addition on on uh what am i getting here some funny thing on the picture ah addition by uh walt disney hmm. but it's in the spirit it's okay uh, it seems to me it really is okay uh, another beautiful addition made by Disney, is when the Wicked Witch, the Queen Mother, has created the poisoned apple, which we took from the Bible, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. It's got the poison apple because only half of it is poisoned. Right. And it's a red and white apple. Then they, how does she get over from the castle to where... Uh, she is staying at the house of the seven dwarves. The brothers Grimm don't try to tell you. She just does. Mm -hmm. But if you think about Disney, Disney has her take the apple and start walking down a circular stairwell deep into the cellar, the dungeon, dungeon of the castle. She goes down into the cellar of the castle next to the dungeon, where there is a boat waiting for her, a rowboat-style boat, but with no oars. She gets into it. She stands in it and takes a pole and starts pulling herself across a river mm -hmm. to get to the land where the seven dwarfs are. Do you recall any figure from mythology, a hooded figure yeah. pushing a pole? It's a, um, is it uh, Karen? That's Karen. That's yeah, right. on the river Styx, right? Yeah. From Greek mythology. Right. And she, at this point, she's already changed herself into an old woman. Um, That's right. A mm -hmm. hideous witch. So now she has become death coming. Ah, yeah. 
on pushing the pole. And it's a, once you look at it, watch it for just a second. And Disney doesn't just let it be a moment. You see it, and you have to see it. It's death on the way. Mm-hmm. Pushing the pole, making sure that she's heading right straight for her victim, apple in hand. Right. And uh, what a combination of ancient Greek, Greco-Roman, classical figures with Karen, plus the apple in her hand. Right. And and she's on her way. Uh, it's just beautiful, I think. The combination, again, this time it's not Germanic so much as it is classical Greco-Roman. Right. And, and, uh, and then she arrives at the house and tempts. Well, you read this in the book, too, I'm sure. But she tempts uh, the poor little thing to think that beauty really is something external. Mm-hmm. Like she, as the queen, believed very, very much. And the, the mirror warned her, it's not so. Right. She's a thousand times more beautiful than you, no matter what she looks like. Mm, yeah. And the queen did not enjoy hearing that, <laughs> <laughs> as you know. Then she reaches the usual conclusion. Well, then if I get rid of her, maybe I'll be the most beautiful in the land. Mm-hmm. It's A. Right, yes, the logic again. Yeah, he's being logic. It's logic is so killing to a romantic. Right, it's really a real mark of German romanticism, and the emotions are good, but beware of logic. Mm-hmm. Anyway, when she goes and uh, and gets her, and then she actually succumbs to three temptations to. Be beautiful. Right. The bodice strings to uh, pull the bodice together, force the flesh to show more, show how beautiful she is as a woman. Uh, all of these things she gives into, even the, finally the apple. It's, it's beautiful. Make you beautiful. Eat beauty, and then mm. she drops dead. Uh, everything is is. It's, he's true to the Grimm's inner message. That's what I would say. Uh, that if you if you get deceived into thinking beauty is only how you look exteriorly, and it is not what you really are inside, you are deeply mistaken, and and uh, it's deadly. Your personality will die if that's what you persuade yourself beautiful is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Instead, it's humility, honesty, kindness, things like that makes you beautiful. So it's almost like a sermon, but uh, but death is used metaphorically and for real, both, you know, in, in the same tale. And Grimm uh, did it, but I think Disney pretty much caught the internal spirit of it very, very well, even though in the movies... Bad characters can always be made much more exciting and vivid than good characters. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They like that mirror and that queen. Yeah, they're very dramatic. The the That's... queen is very very dramatic. Um, and what I liked about the uh, your notes in there, um, she wanted the queen uh, wanted the huntsman to cut out her lungs and liver. 
so she That's could right. eat them, right? But uh, yes. the there we go again. And, and gain her beauty that way, right? That's that's yes. what. But the huntsman had pity on Snow White and didn't kill her, let her go, and killed uh, a boar instead. So the the queen is eating the lungs and liver of a pig, and so yes. she becomes more like a pig. You know, um, yes, she does. Yes, very. It's very interesting. She wants to become beautiful, so to eat eat beautiful things, um, and. You, that that's pulled from uh, uh, Siegfried and the dragon um, it, fighting the dragon and then getting the heart and then he gives it to I forget the, his friend's name who's trying to get him to try to kill him but he's like I want to eat the heart so I can gain the knowledge and wisdom or whatever of the dragon um, and so she the, he's a kind of identifying the queen with um, Siegfried's uh, betrayer basically um, so. Yeah, really, it's fascinating. I like, I like the identif. She, she becomes more pig-like, you know. It's like she, that's she becomes, she identifies with the pig, you know. It's very, very interesting. And there, there is kind of some humor in there a little bit, you know. Uh, when you, yes, when you think is, about it, you is, know, there is. especially yeah. because Germans are very fond of that Schwein mm, yeah. word <laughs> as a very negative word, right? And it, uh, it, yeah, you're right. It is, it is indeed kind of humorous, and it. You know, the Grimm's really made a masterpiece out of that, in my opinion. So yeah. that it wasn't hard for Disney to say, I'll do it too. And Disney, I think, did not lose a feel for classical imagery, Germanic imagery, right. and uh, obviously Christian imagery. Yeah. And so the three, and from scene after scene, you go from one to the other, sometimes combined. So it becomes a, the secret to how to compose a fairy tale. If you can find something in each of those traditions that you weave together, uh, you'll find a fine tale is waiting for you. Yeah, yeah. It's and it's it's not it's not tricky is not the right word, but it it can be um, if you don't know that they're pulling from these sources um, to try yeah. to resuscitate the story. That's why I was kind of talking to you before this. That's why the these stories seem so jarring to people. They're so strange because yeah. when you read them, like okay, in the translation I have with Snow White, um, it's not. I mean, bodice might work, and you you translated bodice in your um, in your book, and that makes yeah. a lot more sense. Um, but the the translation I have it says lace, but then it, it describes it like a bodice, right? Like they're tying it yeah, up and right. asphyxiating her and stuff. And when I read it the first time, I'm like, so it's like like around the neck, like what's going on? But then when you had bodice in there, like oh, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah, that oh, very good. Yeah, you could say girdle even maybe if you wanted to. Girdle bodice, yeah, just something that yeah, like accentuates the feminine figure. Um, That's right. To make her more like the queen, right? To make her more. That's right. Um, much, much more. Yeah, because she's ex- externally beautiful, the queen is, but um, her temptation is, is like you said in the book, uh, it's very much like Satan tempting. Um, you will be like, you will be beautiful like God, you know, if you just do these things, if you just do these external things, you know, that have poison in That's them. Right. <laughs> That's right. Genesis said it too. Yep. You will be like God. That, yeah. that justifies again, as you said, the Grimm's belief by pulling from these sources, they're pushing the fairy tale back to yeah. when it was composed and its insights. And then they add, added a few very nice little, you probably read the thing I wrote about the glass in that story too, mm-hmm. about seeing and not being able to see and how uh, the story begins with the real mother standing at the window sewing yep. and she 
stabs herself with the sewing needle because she's looking out through the window at the falling snow. Yeah. And likes it and thinks it's beautiful and then inadvertently stabs herself. Mm -hmm. But she she can see the outside world and be delighted by it. Right. That tickles me. But then you come to the false mother, the second mother, stepmother, the queen. She has no time for the window. She prefers the mirror. Mm -hmm. Oh, boy, here we go. <laughs> Reflexive. She looks in order to see herself. Yep. She does not look in order to see the outside world. She right. looks in order to see herself. That's a preoccupation with the outside of herself that's very, very bad. Mm -hmm. yep. And then at the end, the glass is there again, but this time it's a casket. And it's very beautiful because of all the wonderful things with the prince he sees through the glass. Most people cannot see through a casket. Right, right. But to this prince, it's transparent. And it's who he's in love with. He wants to see through the wooden frame of the casket as if it were glass, and he sees the real person inside, not just the externals, and sees the real person, and falls in love and says, come on with me to my father's house. Uh, it's pure Christianity. Yep. <laughs> and the whole thing is pure Christianity, and even though there are classical and Norse elements in it, uh, which the Grimms want, because they want antiquity mm -hmm. guaranteed to the, the tale, but uh, deeply, the story is Christian, and it's one of my favorites, actually. Yeah, and the book, the so the, the title of the book comes from this story, because on the um, casket, or on the casket, uh, the dove, the white dove sits on top, uh, and then on yep. each side is the, the reddish owl and the black raven, um, and each of those birds represents an aspect of one of the cultures they're pulling it from. So the owl is like the Athena's owl, and then you have um, Odin's um, raven, a memory right. and consciousness. You know the two ravens that sit on his shoulders, and then um, and then the dove is the Holy Spirit. So um, this story is kind of the the crux of kind of the culmination of their 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 whole project, I think. In this Very in, good. in this I story, I couldn't have said it better. <laughs> yeah, and how yeah, each really, bird is waiting. True. It is the culmination of, of all those things, and. <laughs> what I realized at the very end when I was working on this, there are also the colors of Snow White herself. Yes. Yep. And therefore, where do the three religions really come from? They come from inside Snow White. Mm. When you think about that, where do religions come from? And we're not talking about God. We mean the personal faith response to religion. From inside the good person, it's, it's the good person that believes in God and the good person that believes in the gods and the good person that believes that Karen pushes our craft across the river at the end. Mm -hmm. Good person. And, and so, you know, God does not come from inside our hearts, but the religions do. Mm -hmm. All three that, that they use to compose the stories. 
So I'm I, I'm a deep fan of the Grimms, and I'm a fan of Walter Disney too. <laughs> yeah, his family, by the way, was apparently Bavarian. Oh, interesting. Okay. So I didn't know that. I read that someplace recently that uh, the family was German in origin, and so Disney may have inherited some of these things somehow. Yeah. Through the family, I never heard that name in Germany though. Disney, Disney. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know much about Disney's personal. Faith, that, yeah, uh, they they are Germans, and therefore they loved all this stuff. Yeah. believe. Yeah, I mean it's it's a they're beautiful stories, and they're they are masterpieces of literature. If anything else, you know they're especially the five that you highlight in here, and you do Sleeping Beauty and Cinderella too. Um, and they're all wonderful stories. I love, um, I love all of Grimm's stories, even the more satirical ones. I remember reading one um, to the kids before they were gonna go to bed, and it was um, I had never read it before. It was um, oh, the little farmer or something like that. And um, basically, it's a story about adultery, <laughs> but it's 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 um, veiled, right? Like only adult, only the adults know what's really going on. Um, where this this traveler comes to this farmhouse and. Um, on the, the the wife says, "Oh, my husband's out. You know, you can sleep. You you can sleep in the barn, but here have some food." And he sees in the window this other guy who's clearly not her husband come in and eat and drink, and then like they go to the bedroom and all that stuff. And then the husband comes back, and the the traveler's like, "Hey, maybe you should want to get a drink because the guy's hiding in like the cell, the wine cellar or something." Hey, would you like to have, get a drink? And he's like, "Oh yeah, maybe I would." And so it's this whole thing about, you know. Um, exposing the the unfaithful wife and you know it's it's, it's yeah, very very okay. funny it's very funny but I'm like oh man this might not be the kids didn't get it at all they're no, really young that doesn't sound romantic it sounds pretty bad <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I'm like oh okay I, I was laughing pretty hard the kids are like this doesn't make any sense what's going on where are the ma- where's yeah, the magic right. stuff <laughs> yeah. That's, no that that is not one the kids would think was great no <laughs> but they the kids always they always fight me when I want to read these stories to them. But once I start reading it, because like the book I have doesn't have a ton of pictures. Um, it's got some, but it, um, uh, but when I start reading it, they are, they, they start like, it, it takes maybe 10 seconds for them to get really enthralled in the story. Um, yeah. they, they don't, they don't want it right away. They want something simpler and easier, but then I'm like, no, I'm going to read. I'm just going to start reading. So I just start reading and then they just kind of gravitate towards me and they're listening the whole time. It could be a, like a 15 minute, you know, story. And they're, for the most part, you know, they're pretty attentive. They they really like it, but it's, it they, takes some time to like convince them that it, they actually do like it. <laughs> I like them. I think sometimes if you read them when they're tucked away in bed, they're not asleep yet. We used to call them bedtime stories. We never called them fairy tales. Mm, yeah. When I was a kid, and they read them to us, and it included other things like, uh, well, was it Peter Rabbit? Mm-hmm. Yep. And his exploits in Mr. McGregor's garden. Yeah, we've read all those too. Those are great. Um, I the 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 rabbits ate most of my garden this year, so I really identify with Farmer McGregor. <laughs> <laughs> you can identify with any character you like, right? Like those stupid rabbits ate all my my green beans. That's right. That uh, was good. So well, listen, you like that stuff so much. You see my tree of salvation. 
So I have not read that essay in the back of your book. I have your I have your other book, um, Yggdrasil, the tree, you know, the world, the tree of salvation. So I'm going to read all of that, okay. in, in, probably in the and next few months. But that's the kind of book you don't have to read straight through. Just each chapter is uh, oh, okay. sort of independent. They're Great. not stories, though. Right, but it's it's it combines things that I really like, which is Norse mythology and Christianity. It comes from the same world, that's right. <laughs> yeah, the tree, the tree is everything in the North, and uh, so, I mean, I was thinking, if you do like this, and obviously you do, you you will like that one very much, I think. Right. Well, I yeah, I plan to read that pretty soon. Um, not not for a little bit, but um, uh, yeah, that's on on the shelf over there. And um, we're can so we're kind of wrapping up, but um. Do you, do you still teach at Georgetown University? No, I'm retired. Now. Retired. Okay, got it. Just retired. I'm Professor Emeritus. I, I did. Uh, I did see something like that on the website. I just wanted to, to make sure. So yeah, you taught at Georgetown. Uh, now you're retired. And then, um, where can people find? I have two more questions for you. One of them is, where can people find your books? Um, anywhere, Amazon. Amazon. Okay. <laughs> Amazon will do. If you, this one is Oxford. Mm-hmm. Oxford University Press, so you can find that. But I think the easiest is uh, Amazon. Yeah, awesome. So the book is The Owl, the Raven, and the Dove. Um, And then I have one more question for you. First, thank you for being on the show. It's been a lot of fun, very interesting. I got more insights into these stories. Um, And, yeah, they're just they're so rich and deep, and I I love them. They're, They're amazing. And I want to do the same thing with like the Norwegian stories. I know the Grimm's brothers, they inspired this whole wave of um, different uh, countries, uh, right. folklorists, like, uh, oh, I can't pronounce his name, but Al, uh, Ab Jordanson and Mo um, with the Norwegian folk tales that recently were retranslated by Tina Nunnally, who did uh, Sigurd Inset's um, books. Um, so I have those, and those are wonderful. Um, but I have one more question for you. So this, this show is uh, called I Might Believe in Fairies. And I don't know if you've listened to any other episode or anything, but I always ask this question to guests, especially new guests. Um, so I I am agnostic, more leaning towards more belief in fairies than not. But um, um, it's called I Might Believe in Fairies, because I'm not sure if these creatures exist. But uh, we were just talking about fairy tales. But I want to know right. if you, uh, Father Murphy, uh, if you believe in fairies. I thought you might ask that. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will give you two answers. Number one, I believe in fairy tales. Uh-huh. That's not the same thing. That's a dodge. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I do believe in fairy tales because I believe they are true. Mm-hmm. And uh, especially the ones that I wrote about, the really special religious tales, they are true. And so that's my first belief in fairy tales. Thinking fairies. I once asked my grandfather that question, who's mm-hmm. from the old country. And I said, you know, in Ireland, they say there are the little people. Yeah. So I said, now, Grandpa, do you believe in the little people? Now, he was reading a newspaper, and I still remember he heard the question very clearly, but down came the newspaper. <laughs> and I thought, uh-oh, I think I've asked something serious. And he said, now, Ronnie, me boy, which is how he called me. I was always Ronnie, me boy. Now, Ronnie, me boy, am I a good Catholic or am I not? And I said, you are, Grandpa. So he said, and does the priest say we're supposed to believe in the little people? Yes or no? And 
I said, no, they say we're not. Good, then you have your answer. <laughs> and I said, now, wait a minute. I Even as a little kid, said, uh, he's not telling me the whole story. Right. So I said, Grandpa, so they don't exist. Oh, that brought the newspaper down again. Fast. <laughs> so I said, Grandpa, you don't think they exist or they do exist? So he said to me, now I remember this. Now, Ronnie, don't be simple. Either they exist or they don't exist. Whether or not I believe in them hasn't got a damn thing to do with it. <laughs> there goes faith out the window. <laughs> Either they are or they aren't. Why ask me whether I believe in them or not? <laughs> so anyway heaven only knows I, I have to say with my grandfather either they are or they aren't and whether or not I say I believe in them they could care less if they exist or if they don't exist they could care less too <laughs> so, <laughs> but are the spirits answer. yeah sure because we have a long tradition of angels and things like that they're, they're much more than us Mm -hmm. uh, I think running around. If you go to Iceland, Iceland has two claims of fame that they told us on the airplane. Number one, they've got the highest level of educated people in the world. They have more MAs and PhDs than anybody else. Wow. Second, they have the highest level of belief in the little people. Yeah. Of anybody. Now, in their case, it's elves and trolls mm -hmm. under the bridges and all that they, they have a higher belief in elves and trolls especially if you live in a landscape like that yeah i think that those beliefs are not going to go away in terms so i have to let that be one of the mysteries of life uh, it's fair enough I'm not, i like the icelanders <laughs> <laughs> yeah my my grandfather is from norway um, oh wow so uh, his family comes, his, his, his grandfather was Knut. His name was Knut. Um, and I visited his grave um, when we buried my grandma a couple years ago. I visited the family, the family plot. They're good, they're good Lutherans, you know. They're, um, but uh, my grandfather taught me about trolls, you know, when I was uh, a little kid. And um, if I ask him about it now, I don't know if he believes in them now. But he, when I was a kid, it sure seemed like he did, you know. So he... Okay. Um, so yeah, he told us all about trolls and uh, and gnomes and elves and all, all those all those things. So um, yeah. he always blamed the gremlins uh, if he lost lost a tool, he would blame them. You know. <laughs> Jeez. So when I, when I was in South Germany not too 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 long ago, I asked a Jesuit, mm -hmm. another priest, um, do people around here still believe in elves and things like that? He said, no, 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 nobody believes in that anymore. Then I said, do they believe in the Heinzelmännchen, which is a German little elf type creature who finds lost things for you? They're all benevolent. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's hard to translate the name. Even Heinzel is, Heinz is Henry. And then the little man Henry, I guess it's Heinzel Mansion. And he said, when I said, so you, you don't believe in Heinzel Mansion either? 
He said, oh, now that's another story. <laughs> said, it sounds like my Irish relatives. Right. <laughs> they do the good things for you. They tell you where you dropped something when you did, when you lost it, so you can go find it again. That's right. mansion. So <laughs> everybody, I think, has got a whole bunch of different cells in their brain where they put info. Mm -hmm. And some of them can be empty, like... Uh, gnomes and elves and all of that but if you name the right one uh they'll suddenly say oh no 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 i don't want to deny those right. <laughs> they've all got something awesome you believe there's a guardian angel who helped you avoid that car accident last week yes <laughs> <laughs> oh yes <laughs> okay. all right somebody grabbed your steering wheel right <laughs> Well, awesome. Well, thank you. I should get going. Um, okay. Got to feed the kids lunch, but uh, this has been wonderful. <laughs> so Dude, thank. Make sure you feed them well. Yeah, we won't be logical about it though. We'll. Uh... <laughs> no, don't be logical. Feed them. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Father. This has been this has You're been wonderful. Welcome. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of I Might Believe in Fairies. Please leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Please follow me on Twitter at Aaron Erber and like me on Facebook. If you're excited to see where the podcast is going and want to offer some support for the project, you can find me on Patreon. Music is by Alexander Nakarada, and podcast art was designed by my wonderful sister-in-law, Linnea Kisby. Until next time, talk to you soon.